Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by IK Multimedia. IK Multimedia gives musicians access to the most famous and sought-after guitar gear and studio effects of all time with our Amplitude and T-Rex analog modeling software. Now, IK has created the ultimate all-in-one bundle for bands and engineers, the Total Studio 2 Max, combining all of IK's award-winning amps, effects, sounds, and more. It's everything you need to track, mix, and master your music. IK Multimedia, musicians first. For more info, go to www.ikmultimedia.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, and Bring Me the Horizon. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder. Pro quality, multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. All right, so welcome to the URM podcast. With me is one of the most requested guests of all time that we've had, uh, Mr. Dan Lancaster from London, England. He's an artist, producer, mixer, mastering engineer. And uh, you know of him because he's worked with monster acts like Blink-182, Bring Me the Horizon, Good Charlotte, on and on and on. Welcome, Dan. Thank you for being here. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Um, when you put it like Long that, time coming. it does sound crazy, doesn't it? All those acts. Yeah. I mean, do you ever think about it? Not like that. No, no. They're just because bands you work with, it's right? Like, yeah. It's kind of work. Obviously, I love my job, but yeah. So when you put it in a list, it's like, ooh. Credentials. That's nice. <laughs> so thanks for that. Well, I mean, if you talk to Dan from 10 years ago, would Dan from 10 years ago believe that that would be the I, credentials? I didn't want to be a producer 10 years ago. Like, as in, I I didn't, I had the option of pursuing production and I didn't want to do it. Is it not like, hmm, I don't know if I will, I don't know what I want to do. It was like, I knew I didn't want to do production. <laughs> Which is really weird. Why not? Because at the time I was in a band and I liked um, I liked being in the band. I liked the record. I liked the, um, I don't know, like making the songs really rather than, because I was crap at doing the engineering really is what it is when you start, isn't it? You haven't got a clue. That was just like, oh, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so I thought that that was what production was. It's funny because looking back now, it's it's not... It's not that at all. There's so much more to it. But back then it was like I couldn't handle the engineering and therefore I had no interest in pursuing it. I actively didn't want to pursue it and I wanted to be an artist um, as opposed What changed? I suddenly got... It was pretty much overnight. It was like I got interested in it in a moment. I was just like, oh, interesting, pretty much. And then, and then that was it. I was obsessed and that obsession lasted. What, what was that moment? It was pretty much when I got my own space. Um, I was kind of given a room that my brother had spare in his um, factory at the time for his business. He's since gone on to move and everything. This was a few years. This was, shit, this was 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years. Um, I'm 32 nearly. So 
I was like 22. Anyway, he gave me a room and that room led to Pro Tools for the first time. I wasn't using some dodgy version of something. For the first time, I suddenly had Pro Tools, an interface. So it was like I had ownership of something, um, albeit basic at that point, that was um, that spawned the, the kind of obsession to learn how to use it. Um, and I was... Uh, I always thought I didn't have enough, you know, I couldn't possibly do what I wanted to do because I had an, sort of an entry level setup, but it, which is partly true, but it was really deeper than that. You know, it was like, I didn't really know what I was doing at all. So yeah, it pretty much happened overnight. I just got really into, um, into production all of a sudden and in particular engineering, I suppose, drums, um, and how to get them in so that I could get them towards the mixing part. Because actually... What about drums attracted you? Um, because they're so hard to make sound good when you're a beginner. Um, they just sound so bad um, because it's, there's a lot there. There's so many channels and all that. Um, you can't... I don't really see how you can get a vocal wrong, wrong, you know, um, comparatively to drums. You can, but you wouldn't catch me doing it because it's just basically singing to them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like there's there's loads of cool different mics and preamps and all that stuff, but it's not that interesting to me because there's not a lot of variables because there's so many variables in the performer's voice. That's the, the interesting bit. Um, so but, how did you go about learning it, the drums, how to well, recording drums? That's the cool thing about meeting you and this, this kind of resource that you have. Um was there back then there really wasn't any there was barely even youtube nope. <laughs> i mean there was youtube but there wasn't loads of different channels of people talking about the latest pro tools 7 there just wasn't and if there was i didn't know about it um there i don't think there really was no um be interesting to go back wouldn't it see what there actually was and how it all worked on youtube and stuff like that but yeah it's not just youtube of course you have the internet itself that was probably a better resource for for learning but um it was really it came down to um trying to do it basically and failing <laughs> um each time over and over and over i'm sure pretty much um and then kind of reading sound on sound magazine that was one of the ones you know when you know nothing and all of that information is there it's kind of fun to read through but actually trying to find what you want um isn't that easy in a magazine because it covers, you know, you know, what synths come out last month or whatever, and that's not what you're looking for. <laughs> or it certainly wasn't what I was looking for. But it did occasionally have something that was um mm -hmm. what I was interested in learning about. So that was cool. Um and then uh, there's the odd article, isn't there, back then online. But Really, it was just like rumours of, uh, if we're talking about mixing, it was just like kind of rumours of what the superstar mixer dudes were doing. Yeah. Maybe, maybe some forums. Uh, I remember, yeah, Andy Sneap had his forum and he would sometimes post a few tips in there, but they'd be like one sentence or mm. two sentences. Mm. Just be like, yeah, I like adding some distortion to the bass to bring out the mids. Yeah, that's it. And actually, as a, pe yeah, as a piece so of... Like hinting at something. As a piece of information, it's it's two, uh, it's two things. On the one hand, it's cool, because you, you're like, okay, there's, a, there's something for me to absorb, think about, and then apply. 
But the application, on the other hand, doesn't lead to what Andy Sneap is able to achieve when he talks about the mids and adding distortion on the bass mm-hmm. because it's a different context all the time. So it's, yeah, it's a difficult thing. It's like you've got to fill your head with it, go and try it and not achieve what these guys are achieving um, for quite a while. That was, uh, that was how I learned, really, I think. There was no one to teach me. I did a little bit of hustling, like meeting people who I admired and thought that I might be able to get some stuff out of, you know, some information. And actually it worked a little bit, but there was just the, at the point where I was so hungry to learn that it, I just, yeah, I just lost myself in trying to get opportunities to, to work with people and stuff like that. But then that wasn't really the thing that, that got me stuff. It just, again, it was just like finding snippets of information by like sort of watching them do it over their shoulder or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's how I learned really was not through other people and not through uh, coming up the ranks in a studio or anything like that. It's all, I've always done this on my own. I'm in my studio, I'm on my own right now. So, I mean, that's because we're doing a podcast, of course, but mm-hmm. um, I'm, all, I'm basically always on my own, making music, mixing music, producing music. And that's, I've only recently had someone to help me, um, Reese, my assistant. But yeah, no, it's a very much a one-man band, so to speak. So how long do you think it took uh, of, you know, working day in, day out on your own, failing, learning from it, then coming back again and trying to make it better? How long did it take before you started to achieve results that other people were excited by? Difficult to measure because part of it is when you're working on a song by an artist that has a profile um, large enough or sort of significant enough for them to get their own opportunity for the music to be heard, i.e. radio play or something like that. You can't just produce something and get radio plays, you know what I mean? Because when you start out, you're not going to be working with those kind of artists unless someone, unless you're working for someone. So you have to step up the kind of ladder to a point where you reach an artist who who is in that position and that that takes a lot of work so it's difficult to measure because in sound probably quite a while before that um say it took four years to get to that song being on the radio where i thought wow that sounds good and and actually it's done a bit of rotation on radio so that sort of validates that it might actually be good sounding um Mm -hmm. halfway down those four years there would have been a point where that artist noticed you and what you were doing, thought they they thought it was sounding good. So that's what led to you working with them, which is what led to the radio play. So it's, it's very difficult to measure. But it's years, you know, it's like, it's years, maybe five. Let me think. If I'm 2000, I remember my first paid client was in 2009. Um, and it was like a couple of hundred quid for, I can't even remember, maybe five songs or something. It was it was like a rock mm-hmm. a rock band like a local rock band or something, um, and they were really young. They were like sixteen. I was twenty two, sixteen, seventeen. They were, and um, that was my first paid client. That was two thousand and nine, sort of about maybe seven or eight months after I'd had my Pro Tools rig and stuff. Um, and then like one of the ones that stick out sticks out to me is is here we go by lower than atlantis is one of the first ones and that was in 2014 so that's 5 years on 
Um, that's yeah. not to say that it was the first song that I ever got radio on and that I was even trying to get radio in my career. You know, it's not really what you try and shoot for, but it's a good place to start. You know what I mean? Um, it was probably that song where I thought it sounds good, you know, and I still look at it now and it hasn't really changed. I My ears changed and my songs that I do now don't sound the same, mm-hmm. but it still sounds good to me. And it was uh, it was good at the time. And then it did certain things. It got a lot of um, A-list Radio 1 back in um, 2014, summer. And that was 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 a cool was a cool um, measure of how what people thought of the song, you know, because it was, it was quite, it came out of nowhere for the band. This this A list, it spent five weeks on the A list or something like that, which was quite quite an achievement. So um, that song sticks out for me. So there you go. That's five years, isn't it? Did that open you up to a whole new level of clients from that point forward? Not, basically, not the actual, not really, not the actual radio play. Um, more like the records. You know, so the the corresponding album mm-hmm. that 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 song was from would be something that would be heard by uh, maybe their peers or the label or another label or something like that. More that than the actual radio play itself, but um, but it's certainly all it all contributes towards it. What 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 it actually is is uh, it's a it's a it's a combination of things. Um, and it's not always how good things sound as well. It's more of a businessy no. <laughs> weird A&R stuff going on. But yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you have worked with some huge acts in the music scene. Um, did you or do you have a strategy for uh, attracting and maintaining those types of artists uh, as clients? Or did it just happen organically for you? Um, you can't really like hope to uh, get one of them as a client and actually really directly get that. Um, that's pretty much impossible. Um, for example, say I had wanted to work with Bring Me The Horizon just really badly in my mind. It's not likely that I'm going to get it. It would be kind of chance, you know. There has to be some sort of reason, yeah. So I guess that's what the question is. Um, the strategy for that to be honest, is no matter how small or maybe um, uninspiring or, you know, sometimes some songs you're working on are not very good or whatever, whatever's going on, whatever you're working on, always try and please yourself um, as much as you possibly can to the very last detail that where you can walk away and say, I think that sounds amazing, um, as amazing as it possibly can. You Never be like, ah... Oh, this one doesn't matter as much as this one. It's just no matter who it is. I mean, of course, everything I do now, um, if it's like a big act, I'm obviously because I'm getting paid. I'm obviously, um, I'm obviously trying to do my best on it. But I'm talking about coming up to before I was working on all these acts. No matter how crappy some of the acts might have been, I would always give them sonically my best because I would do it for myself. You know what I mean? Um, they obviously probably wanted. Um, I had an idea of what they wanted in sound, but really they just wanted it to sound good, um, which is easy for me because you just try and make it sound good, basically. So everything was always done as, to the absolute best of my standards. And eventually someone heard something smaller, you know, smaller in terms of profile in a bigger band or a bigger artist. And that's where you can open a door to get an opportunity um, because you're already practised in like, 
how good is how good is this guy? Well, let me show you. Do you know what I mean? And you give it everything. Um, that's how it works, I think. So you looked at every project as an opportunity to refine your skills and to just develop yeah, excellence. To hone my craft. Yeah. And now, and now I, I'm um, in a completely different position to four years ago, let's say, um, with who I'm working with in terms of the profile and stuff like that. And it's still the same thing. It's like, um, actually, I it's weird because like recently I've become a mixing engineer where I'm on labels radars and, and artists radars as a mixer and bef- there was actually a point where that was that started it was like a measurable time and that was when bring me the horizon um asked me to mix their record i'd never mixed an album ever that i hadn't produced so before all that i was just producing and, and mixing and it was all kind of bundled in mm-hmm. um for the artists I was working on, or I would produce and then someone else would mix it in occasionally, I think maybe only once or twice, like Neil Avron did some LTA stuff. Um, but most of the time I was producing and and mixing, so until it got to bring me, and then I was able to be seen as a mixer, basically. And that's uh, that's where I I've I do a lot of mixing now and I just make sure that I'm trying to make everything excellent basically you know and um i was doing that before and i'm doing it now and it was always it's always been normal for me and i think that's what you can just build on that you know in an interview i read with you you talked about how you have to be hungry for what you want because there's always people out there trying to best you Mm. um what got you to that mindset partly um experience um if you just kind of like i think human nature if you're working hard certainly for my personality anyway if you're working hard for, let's say, a week where you're doing maybe 12-hour, 13-hour days, you know, the long ones, and then you finish what you're doing, obviously you're going to need a rest um, to reset, but sometimes you don't always have that time to, to you know, just stop. So you'll be like, well, okay, I finished that seven days, I needed to do that stuff, but I now I now got to do the next stuff, so day eight, is kind of day one again and actually day eight can end up being very unproductive because you you still just want to not do anything and that happens all the time um if you work a lot um trying to you know be successful i suppose and if you end up doing that all the time uh you can you can feel it so you have to balance everything and stay on top of it so that it can be so you could keep it growing it, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Um, so did you always it make yourself take breaks when you were first starting, or is this something that you uh, figured out over time? This is something that, that I, it was I, just better. As, as like a more mature professional, I do it now. Um, when I was young, younger and just kind of throwing every, all my energy at it, I would. Um, I think that's a mistake, you know, to just keep. You have to, I mean, everything in life is a balance. You have to balance it all. Um, but there is a certain period of time, period of years where you really do have to just go crazy if you want to get the results. Um, and, uh, and I'm still kind of doing that to be honest these days, but I just think with more, more kind of structured, um, breaks and stuff. Well, how Um, often do you have a break just say in your regular life now? Um, if I'm, if I'm really absorbed in what I'm doing, it can be like a forget to eat and stuff. Um, so it, it, I don't really, um, in my mind is always kind of frantic. And when I'm 
focused on something, I'm hyper focused normally if I'm enjoying it. So I don't really, I don't really take breaks. I like to, but and I should do it more. But if particularly the songwriting or the production, I'll just sit there for hours and I don't even know that the time's passing. But yeah, you don't want to go too mad. So is, it like, is it like a hype, hyper focus where the rest of the world just yeah, disappears? Totally, and, totally, and that's yeah. that's a great sort of quality to have. I think it's been good for me that that's built inside me somewhere because um, it helps me to uh, it helps me to get things done without really like having to try. You know, I just kind of get in there, get locked in, and and just keep keep focused and stuff. But sometimes it can be hard to make the start for me. Um, you know, sometimes it can be if you've got a lot of work on, it's like, oh, I finished it, brilliant. And then you've got to do the next thing, and always the start of something is not as exciting as once you're once you're deeper into it. So that's why I have Reese to help me out, get me started, um, get me quicker into the creative stuff. You know, I think the biggest challenge with this kind of stuff typically is just getting started. Totally. Man. I mean, I, I know that with guitar playing too, and I've heard a lot that also with writing, not. I, I mean, music writing, but also like writing words for mm. you write books or I mean, any sort of task-based thing, isn't it? Yeah. That um, yeah. when you work for yourself, you need extra special skills and motivation. Um, and and if you've got them, you're you're going to be ahead of the the other people. I think I'm still working on mine. <laughs> Have you always had them? Um, yeah, same here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, I can I've got like a compromise because I can get myself so focused if I'm lucky enough to be accidentally absorbed in something so deeply that I can just keep going, I've got that working for me. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's like, that's like when you're doing it for a job, it's like anything, isn't it? Like a career or uh, working for yourself. Do you ever take days off? Yeah, yeah I do now. Yeah. I like to, um, this year I think I'm going to be doing like four holidays, but there'll be five days rather than weeks, because I get bored on holiday as well. It's the opposite. If I'm sitting around doing nothing, I just want to write music or whatever. So I'll probably mm -hmm. do like 20 days properly not doing music this year, and the rest of them will be... I'll take the weekends off. I'll take Sundays off. Most Saturdays I'll, I'll keep working. Um, I think it's crucial, man. I really do. Um, but I totally do agree with you that when you're younger and you're first starting, you have to pull like the four or five years of just insane work to mm. get good. You still got like you, you still got to be smart with it. You don't want to just work mm -hmm. in in the wrong direction. You still got to think what your goal is, you know, I think. Um but yeah, definitely. Yeah, you just find yourself. I mean studio people in general just all kind of anyone who's listened to this, anyone who's uh you know, subscribers on your staff, they're all going to be kind of looking at their computers all day, you know, like that's what we do. So it's just like, it's just a bit nerdy, isn't it? So it's like, you can easily... Just a bit. Yeah, you can spend a lot of time <laughs> just doing it. So yeah, you just find yourself end up, you know, a whole month can be like, whoa, what was that shit? You know, um, especially, yeah. if you're, especially <laughs> in a studio with a band or something like that, which I don't particularly like doing. Um, it's just, just a little bit too intense for me, but... But um, sometimes it's got to be done. But yeah. So do you prefer the the fact that you're getting a lot more mixing work now for stuff that you didn't produce? Do you like that better? Um, I feel like it's pretty awesome because it's um, 
it's always the thing like pretty much from day one that I set out to be good at it was the thing that I was the worst at and I think everyone is when you start because in a way you can record a drum kit and it sound recorded do you know what I mean it's like it's the context mm -hmm. at the end and getting to the end so and that's the mixing and you can't engine you can't really be a mixer without being an engineer as well in my opinion you have to know what these guys are doing so you have to kind of learn to do it yourself to take it's kind of yeah so mixing was the was the thing that I was always wanting to be the best at that was the hardest most interesting most challenging and therefore most rewarding part so now that I'm able to mix records I feel really lucky I have to kind of remind myself that you know holy shit I just I reached my goal you know because it took so long to get to that point um one day I was actually walking along and I just kind of realized I was like shit I just mixed whatever you know something big and I was like that's mental so um and then I realized I'd hit a point I'd hit I'd hit that goal and I it happened after the realization happened way after like the project or whatever. Um, cause at the time it's like a really, ah, it's work, you know, you gotta, gotta get it done. Um, but I, I love that I'm doing the mixing. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's like my favorite bit, but I wouldn't say that I would only want to do that. Cause I actually have the capacity to, to write songs. I'm a writer as well. So, um, I do some art, artist stuff as well. And then the production, of course, which half the time the mixing crosses over with, doesn't it? And vice versa. But I wouldn't want to just do mixing because for me it's like, I like that it's isolated, you're on your own and you can just like, you know, listen to the speakers and sit there for hours on your own making it sound cool. It's a really rewarding process to get to the, to the finish line. But I wouldn't just want to do that. So what's different in your process um, between, say, when you first get a mix from somebody else like something you did not produce versus when you go to mix something that you did produce? Hmm. Um, I don't, pro I actually produce, I actually mix other people's stuff in a much larger volume these days than I do mix something I've produced. Um, if we're talking numbers of songs, I'd estimate it's probably about 15 songs a year. And that's if I've done an album that I would be producing and mixing myself. So like one album a year. Roughly. And then probably given that albums come in and single songs come in and a couple of songs come in as, as a mixing job, I probably mix maybe 40, 50 songs a year. I don't know. I haven't, I've never counted, but so I don't really have a set process for the, um, the production to mix um, because I'm just not doing a large volume of it, like I say. But mm -hmm. mixing, I've got. Reese to help me start because actually the start is well it's basically translating if it's Pro Tools and it's less translation but it's basically translating their work into your space so I get someone else to do that for me because it's just a killer it's not it's not the same process and it can be weird trying to mix the two in because I'll start doing it I'll be like well that needs to be there that, you know as per what I'm used to and then I'll start mixing the snare and start EQing it. And I realize I've still got the whole song in different colors and don't know what the fuck's going on. So yeah. <laughs> I make someone separate them out for me um, because it's quite easy. If, if you're just doing it as a one stage, it's quite easy to just not mix in. What colors should it be? Where should it be? Should it be labeled? 
what does it look like? What does it sound like? What can I do with it? Um, and that's a cool stage, but you don't. Want, I don't like putting them together, of course, and lots of mix engineers don't do that themselves. So, yeah. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then, at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mixed the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for your use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really want to step up the game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 40 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hour sessions with us and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urmacademy.com to find out more. I always urge people to try and get someone else to do it, but if they can't afford that yet, at least do it on two separate days. Yeah, two separate days. Set the song up one day, mix it the next. It's a good good shout, yeah, because like I said, they're so different. And when I try to do it, I can never... I just get too too interested in the mixing, too excited to, you know, by something that I'm hearing, want to make it sound cool, and then find myself half mixing and half organising and ultimately not going very directly to where I want to go. Um, But it's not really like get someone else to do it. I don't think you should delegate stuff that you haven't got under your own skill set. I mean, it Mm -hmm. took me years to delegate that. I only started doing it last summer. Um, so you put that in perspective, that's, you know, that's a long time working on my own. I did everything. So all the editing, Absolutely. because then I know what what to do. I know like you, in a sense, you become a expert at everything you need to be able to do. So I think that's a powerful tool for me to have. And then it just became a point where I was too much mixing and it was taking too long. So my manager was not able to, you know, so I had to change basically. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I totally agree. I mean, I don't think that people should delegate it either until they know exactly how to do it. Because if the guy that you delegate it to needs to do it according to your specifications, Mm. even, you know, they're laying samples or editing the drums or whatever it is that they're doing, you know, they need to be doing it in accordance with what you want as a mixer or producer. Otherwise, they're not really helping, are they, I suppose? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, So... I feel like until you actually know how to do it, you can't communicate it. And Reese still only does like the kind of simple stuff, um, coloring and 
it's still like a killer to the process. You know, it's the, like I say, we're talking about the, it's the wrong, it's not the right brain space. It's like part organizing, part mixing. He's still not doing it to a crazy advanced level. He just knows basic things, colors, where, the where they go, buses, you know. So it's like some, I've started getting into plugins with him now as well. Um, because there's so many plugins and stuff that I use all the time on the same thing, if it's a certain type of production. But yeah, for the most part, even now, it's still quite a simple ask. It can take him, sometimes it can take him 15 minutes, you know what I mean, to do it. But that 15 minutes for me, I still wouldn't be able to do it very well. So he does it really well. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it's cool. That's That's the reason actually that I had someone start doing that for me was because I knew how and I knew all of what to do, but I get distracted really, really easily when doing tasks like that. So I would end up doing a sloppy job. It's not that I didn't know how to do it. It's just my brain like stops focusing when I have to do those types of tasks. And there are other people who like doing that kind of stuff and whose brains are better designed That's it. Yeah. to do them great. Got to go with yeah. your strengths. Um, yeah, definitely. As a job, when it's your job, you're trying to work out what kind of you got to yeah you got to work out what kind of stuff you're good at and what stuff you're not good at and because I'm not good at it oh I'm bad at I'm bad at that stuff you know I just can't I can't get there directly I just I just lose it even when I'm mixing say if I decide to do something um, that involves going through I don't know like adding a snare or something simple like that you think oh well that actually well, that sample that I've just added on this little section sounds cool I then need to go through and do it on the whole song, because maybe it's probably easier to just manually bang, 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 you know. Um, I'll get to the last chorus and forget to finish it because something else will be interesting to me. And uh, when I'm mixing, a lot of the time I'm just sort of kind of swimming around the the song at the end, just kind of doing things in different places all over the place. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it can be... Uh, it can be, it, it happens when I'm actually doing it. Because at that point, you wouldn't cut off and say, oh, please, can someone else do this for me? You just do it yourself, don't you? Because you're, you're working on it. So how did uh, Bring Me the Horizon enter your life? Just changing gears. I mean, you kind of said that that was a big turning point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, because they were the first album that I mixed. That was like, you're a mixer now. Can you please mix? You know, we like the sound of your mix. So I was, although I'd done it before, I'd never done like a record I've maybe done a couple of tracks that were just just mixing. So anyway, um, how do we get there? It was quite simple. The band had a song that they um, they had going on Radio One, and it was like a kind of song for a specific show. So they'd written it for this show. It was actually like the rescoring of the soundtrack to a movie called Drive um, with um, Ryan Gosling. It was a weird situation. So they wrote a song for it. I've seen that movie. It's good. Yeah, it's cool. Um, Zane Lowe, uh, who was a DJ at the time, curated a new soundtrack for it. It was quite an um, unusual thing. Anyway, so Bring Me the Horizon were one of the artists for that song. That was the song that I was mixing. It's called Don't Look Down. I think you can find it on YouTube. I don't know if it's on Spotify, actually. It probably is. But anyway, it's on YouTube. I know that. Um, Don't Look Down. And um, they produced it themselves as per they ended up doing for the album, but they'd done it with like ele electronic drums, um, like kind of, you know, sampled uh, fake real drums. You know what I mean? They hadn't, it, it was it was basically a situation where they wanted it mixed and 
if they got a good mix out of it, it was like a bonus. It didn't really, it wasn't a, a huge problem. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of weird. Okay. So there was a friend of mine, Pete Miles, is a producer, and he's got a studio down in the corner of the UK, a place called Devon. Um, and he was friends with Jordan, is friends with Jordan. And Jordan said to Pete, um, can you mix this track for us? Um, you know, it's not a huge budget, it's a very small budget. And Pete was like, kind of busy or whatever, but you should give it to my mate Dan. Um, so they, Pete put me in touch with Jordan and Jordan said, here you go. And I said, yeah, sure, oh, great, bring me the rise and I'll do it. And as we were talking about earlier, I gave it everything. I made it sound. I just wanted to impress Jordan. I didn't know him, but I just wanted to impress Jordan. That was my agenda. So um, I did that um, and it worked and Jordan thought it was good. Um, six months passed I, and they used it and everything like that yeah so it went on the radio whatever six months went past they'd written an, an album and they asked me to be in uh, to do a mix of their song Drown which came out around a similar time to this Don't Look Down song anyway um, they asked me to do a test mix you know but like a, the song had already been released they just gave the stems to me and three other dudes and they were going to blindly test you know, do a, a shootout. And my one obviously was favoured and that led to them just going literally, here's the dates, here's the uh, deal, you're mixing our album, are you interested? And I was like, yes. So that's how it happened. Um, <laughs> it was cool. Um, interesting about the first song that I did for them though, uh, I was f it was a Saturday afternoon and they wanted a quick turnaround. And I was not in the studio, I was not around the speakers. At the time, my studio was a, an hour away, you know, where I would, would have been comfortable mixing. Um, so I just got my headphones out and I, and I, I had an iMac. Um, and I started, I thought I'd, I thought I'd do what we were talking about earlier, what Reese does for me, you know, just kind of get it in the right shape. Ended up mixing the whole track on headphones. <laughs> and was re as a result, was reluctant to send it to Jordan because I'd never done that before. And I was like... But it sounds sick. And these, by the way, these were headphones that were nothing extraordinary. They're actually like, these are um, Sony WXH, I don't know what they are, but they're the, the new, you know, Bluetooth ones. It's the equivalent of these, but the Bose ones, but they were wired, you know. that was, They weren't like studio headphones, so I'm saying they were like, you know, listening headphones. But I'd listened to so many hours of music on them that I felt like they were a relevant thing to wear on my ears. <laughs> And that was crazy, and and because it sounded good, and I had no speakers to like kind of check my song on it, and I just decided to send it to Jordan, and he was like, oh, "Yeah, it sounds really good." And I was like, like, "Fuck it!" But yeah, I was like, "Fuck it," because I was like, "This sounds cool." I've been doing it all day, and um, I was really happy with it. But I just didn't have that confidence, that safety net of you know putting up on Pro Tools and blasting it out of the speakers, or not even blasting it, just having that that flat, you know, comfortable space. Anyway, so I did it with headphones, and then. That was kind of weird because it proved to me that if you get good at making things sound good, you can kind of do it anywhere uh, to, an, to a certain extent. It's not very comfortable to do it in that way, hence why you don't, I think. But it can be done, and in, in a seriously, um, in a seriously kind of like powerful circumstance for my career, it turned out to be as well. So I thought that was interesting to to tell you about. Because 
You know, I, I think that's very interesting because lots of people follow Nolly, for instance, uh, in our community, and uh, Will Putney as well. And I know that Nolly, um, when he is not home, he mixes stuff in headphones. He did our Nail the Mix in headphones, and it sounded great. I know that Will Putney, when he's been, you know, overseas and has had to mix stuff, he's done it in headphones too. Mm. And uh, what it shows is exactly what you said, that if you know what you're doing, and you understand your listening device, like you know your headphones well, you can make it work. You can definitely, it might not be ideal, but you can make it work for sure. Because actually when you start mixing, you think, oh, it's frequency, all frequencies, um, which it, obviously everything is frequency and it's all relevant. But I think more often it becomes more about the sounds. So if you know how to make a snare, for example, sound good, or to your ears at least, you can do that in headphones the same way. You're not listening to like the absolute flattest, perfect sound because you don't need it. You know that the snare needs a drastic EQ, compression set of stuff running on it to make it sound good to your ears. So it can be done. You don't need it to be perfect, the speakers, you know, to do that. It's going to sound ma massively different from zero to when you're finished like mixing the snare. So... Well, most of the mm -hmm. time anyway. So yeah, you just don't need, you don't always need the, I mean, I'm not one to talk because I've got like barefoot MM27. So I spent like 10 grand on my speakers, but, but hey, um, yeah, I mean, you do need them, but it's just interesting that you can, you know, you, you wouldn't pick Bring Me The Horizon. Well, I certainly wouldn't at that point in my career to do a, a mix on headphones. You know, it made me very uncomfortable, <laughs> but um, I did it anyway. And it was, yeah, it was kind of cool. Yeah. So how did that lead to bands like Blink-182 and Good Charlotte? I mean, those bands are massive. Because the record was big, the Bring Me record, yeah. I mean, my, my expectation was a little bit different to like the reality of it in terms of what would happen to my name or certainly like what na how my name was on or not on the map after that album came out. So I thought it would be like, right... Done Bring Me the Horizon. That's it. I'm massive. I have arrived. I'm a, I'm a massive mix engineer. It's not the case. <laughs> it's a process, as ever, with everything of years. And now we're looking at, well, this September will be th three years, crikey, um, since the album came out. And, you know, it hasn't been three years. It's a long time to do some big records in. So, yeah. But that that was where it started, man, because there wasn't any other way for anyone to, to, to you know, to know about me until you... Until you get a lucky break. In a way, it was a lucky break, really, because it was it was definitely that that directly led to John Feldman calling me up and saying, hey, can you mix a few songs for me on Blink? Um, because he'd heard the record and everyone liked the album. It was a big album, you know. They'd bring me to an amazing job. It was like a near-perfect campaign for them, I'm sure. But um, people heard it and, and it sounded good. So they were there, there it was. That reminds me of something Andrew Wade said on the podcast mm. a year ago or something, that uh, nobody's going to care about your work until you do something worth caring about. Mm. And it's just the way it goes. You know, you could be the best mixer in the world, but if you've done no bands that anybody cares about, <laughs> obviously, I mean, it's so obvious, but it's so true. Nobody's going to care in that case. No. The moment you do some uh, project that other people care about and you nail it, yeah, that's uh, that's when things begin. And honestly, I'd been I'd been really good at mixing for you know on a kind of like I could compete with whoever level for a couple of years before that. 
And and before that, I was good at mixing and confident mixing, maybe not the best in the world or, you know, totally amazing. Although it's all difficult to measure, but, you know, yeah, it was exactly until something connects where my career took a turn for the better. And um, mm -hmm. I wasn't just, I wasn't just like a, you know, suddenly I was good at mixing. I was like, I've been good at mixing for a while, you know? Um, and it's just, it, oh yeah, it takes a long time, man. So if you're, if anyone's ever wondering about how to get there, yeah, I don't really know how, but it's definitely, um, you definitely need to keep edging yourself towards the right, the right clients. You know what I mean? Because without the right client, John Feldman wouldn't have called me up and stuff. Exactly. The biggest one, like, that I picked up from, in terms of opportunity from Bring Me, was probably 1OK Rock, I would say, because it was just, it sold so many units in Japan. It was, it was a huge album in Japan. Um, so that was the one that was, was sick, because now they're still, like, kind of still a client, and I love those guys and stuff, so it's, I ended up writing with them as well, and it was all because of mixing Bring Me. It's crazy. Nice. I love how that works. Um, it really, that's, I mean, that is the way it works. There's no real tricks. You just have to do good work until someone notices it and gives you an opportunity. Do yeah. Even better work. So thank you, Jordan. Jordan from Bringing the Horizon. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Thanks for giving me that chance. Thanks, Jordan. So I've got some questions here from our listeners for you mm. um, that I'd like to ask you. Uh, they were very, like I said earlier, they're very, very excited that you're here. So oh, that's cool. Here's one from Fab Horn. How do you manage to do this amazing low-end mixture of kick and bass on Here We Go single? Oh, I was talking about Here We Go. We are talking about that. How do I manage it? That's a good question. Um, thanks as well. What is probably... Um, oh, there's just... There is no answer, is there? Like, how do you... It's, it's kind of almost impossible to answer because there's not one thing. It's kind of the low-end going with the mids going with the top you know you could have a wicked sounding low end and something kind of not working elsewhere so firstly it's a balance obviously um but i think a lot of it is probably back then i was using a i can't remember what it's called but there's the waves like a sub harmonic thing i'm sure there's millions of them, millions of them out there but i used the waves one probably adding some sort of octave um of some description to deck space guitar and just giving it quite a lot of boost at 50 hertz um so try that i don't think the kick drum was particularly crazy in the low end um so you kind of don't really want to have both of them going nuts but i don't know it was it's a groove that song isn't it you know it's 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 50 percent that as well so who can say but I don't know, try those things. It is amazing, though, how much the writing and production of a song, like, and how the groove feels makes a difference in mixing decisions. Yeah, because you're going to try and... The context. The dude who asked that question may very well try and kind of, um, what's the word, imitate whatever's going on in that mix. But whatever's going on in that mix is a result of what was written musically, you know? So you're not gonna, ever going to get it. You want to try and do something... Um, on your own for whatever it is your your artist is, is giving you you know and then it's hard it's just not the same frequencies you know what i mean it's a little bit more to do with the song i think and that's why i think that song sounds good is because the song is good <laughs> you know <laughs> i don't know that's not very helpful to an aspiring mixing engineer but it is actually so here's one from adam james brockwell 
um, which is when and for what reasons did you decide to move into a commercial space as opposed to running a professional home studio? Um, I think that wasn't really to do with anything other than um, the songwriting world that I'm in. Um, my studio serves me as a professional work space and somewhere to bring my clients in and record somewhere somewhere for me to mix most of the time just me but it has the capacity you can't really see but if you go on my instagram there's loads of photos um it has the capacity to have songwriting sessions basically i've got the two rooms split i've got an a and a b i've got two pro tools rigs they're kind of mirrored together not real time just they have the same shit on them so everything opens if you move move a session um you know people can jam on the piano out there um, sing a sing a verse while I sit and nerd out over the the chorus production. All of these things sort of make you more powerful as an entity. You know, you can quick fire songs. You can get a better feel for it. You can enjoy your job more. It's just an investment that that the time was was we were ready to to have a, a new space. Me and my manager. You know, we just we just needed to have the capacity for that. Makes sense. So uh, Luke Mansell Ward is wondering, do you have any tips that you could give other producers and mixers about what to do when working with big producers like John Feldman? Um, yeah, you have to be, um, one of the most important things I've learned is being good to work with. Um, how, how I go about doing that and whether or not I am, I'm, I'm not sh- sure, but I like to think that I'm good to work with. You know, I'm reliable. I'm... Um, I'm kind of personable, I'm like friendly and all these things, but the m- most uh, most important is that I deliver on time and to a high standard because the minute you're slow or anything creeps through of your reputation, you're dead. That's it. You're going to lose. So you have to be good to work with, basically. You have to be open-minded. You have to want to learn. Like those, Those are the main things that, that I carry with me my back pocket when I meet someone um, who might be able to, I might be able to have a good relationship with. Makes sense. Here's one from Charlie Madai. First of all, congratulations on Don Bracco's killer new release. Mm. And how did you manage to get that huge tone off your guitars, especially those on Lower Than Atlantis or Don Bracco? Did you get that from real amps? Oh, that's cool. Um, Depends on what song. But uh, the re- the answer is like mainly confidence because when you actually break down what I've done, you know, c- a confidence in what you're doing with a guitar sound. Um, second most important is the song and the part and the kind of arrangement because you can have a really, really good sound and tone if you give it space to be good, you know, musically. So make sure there's not, you know, make sure it's all working together. Be musical about it. But if you actually break down what I did on a kind of an engineering level they're all a bit random do you know what i mean they have a kind of a thread that runs through them with the mics and the cabs and whatever but they're not nothing um um innovative you know i'm not like uh, inventing reinventing the wheel um so for don broker's album i remember it's a lot of single string i'm assuming he's talking about like the choruses and stuff i guess like the big sounds it's going to be like some size going to be playing some sort of single string shit and it sounds like there's going to be an octave pedal on and that's something i've been doing so it's like an octave lower um on the clean signal before it goes to the distorted stuff that's going to be a combination of an amp 
probably so I was insisting on using this Kemper, which I've no reservations about doing. Um, they're cool. Um, and then, yeah, it would have been a Marshall with an octave pedal. It's kind of a single string thing. Otherwise, you have to lose the octave pedal, you know, because um, it just breaks up in the, the part. And then it's going to be three, probably three mics. I probably got rid of one of them and ended up using two. So let's say two, two mics on the Marshall, one on the Kemper, played twice. So essentially it's kind of four parts played simultaneously. That is pretty much what I did on Don Broco. And it didn't make sense to kind of deviate from that all that much. Um, we had some fun with it, but yeah, it's pretty much that from memory. I and mean, this is a year ago now, but LTA has a kind of similar thing with octave pedals and stuff, but I think it was more varied in song to song. So it just depends. Again, though, playing music, all that stuff, got to get that down, you know? I don't know. hope that helps. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it does. Um, here's one from Mike Cockane, which is, What's your writing process? Each new release you worked on seems more and more experimental with style and instrumentation. How do you build towards something like that? Are there any practices or methods you use to develop that part of your craft? Well, I go into something knowing that I have to step up whatever I'm doing every time because you always have to add something or think in a different way or use a different fucking sample library or you always have to make something novel um, to yourself. Otherwise, because if you're making a lot of songs, a lot of them are going to kind of sound the same or whatever. So you got to push yourself to do that. you got to push your client to do that as well. Um, you got to kind of understand what they want um, and try and steer it with them. And then you've got to push each other. Like, so a lot of the time the client pushes me, you know, no, it's not good enough, Dan. <laughs> Make it better. So you have that as well. Like you've just got to keep pushing what you're doing and being open-minded. It's not really a process. It's kind of the same. Um, it depends on who you're working with. If you're if you're collaborating with someone else, it can be completely different to another thing. But yeah, it's pretty much pushing to make sure something is exciting you, that you're stepping something up, you know, in some way all the time. Otherwise, you're over. See you later. Mm -hmm. All right, here's one from Cornelius Lee Duke Vernon Bose. He's got five names in there. Ooh. It's a long one. <laughs> so uh, what's been the most rewarding part of building your studio, and what was it like working on the new Blink? Huh. Um, the most rewarding part was plugging it in, like, um, neatly. <laughs> Weirdly, because it was just so difficult to wire the studio but then make sure that it wasn't that it was done permanently and it wasn't um it was done tidily and smartly so that you can basically never see a cable um pretty much you can literally not see any cables in my studio which i really like but it took like 17 hours and once i started like one in one day it was mad once i started it was just um i had to finish so that was really rewarding of course because i finished it and it just looked so neat and it all worked and it was just great. Um, what was it like working with Blink was the second question, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, Blink uh -huh. was Blink was fun. Um, it was like a bit of an emotional roller coaster though because the situation kept changing. From the minute I first got wind that I might be able to do it, it was like, am I going to be doing it? What are we doing? I had to wait wait for the answers. I to, then I got, sort of got it and then I did this and I did that. I did a few songs, I did a song... And it was like, okay, it's mastering. 
no, we're not mastering. And it was, it was like that. It was all, and because they were so big and for me, and I wanted to be a part of it so much, it was actually quite hard. Like it wasn't like bring, bring me the horizon, which was just like, here's, here's the dates. Here's the deal. Here's the songs. Let's do it. It was just like up, down, up, down, you know, so it was really difficult to be fair. Um, and almost by the end, I was just like, forgot that I was doing Blink. I was just like, whoa, it was a whirlwind. It was cool though. It was really cool. I think the best bit about it was like, you know, getting the hall, like doing it and the emotional roller coaster was kind of tricky. It really tested me, but <laughs> getting the call was fucking amazing. So, yeah. I'm sure. All right, final question. This one's from Simon Lawson. He says, I vaguely remember reading something somewhere that you recorded the drums for Curious Electric in like a sports hall or something to get mm. that amazing natural reverb you can hear on the record. Or am I thinking of something else? And what were the biggest challenges you faced when doing this? And also, when will you finally stop teasing and give us another masterpiece <laughs> from yourself? I need to hear the whole song. He posted a song link. He said he needs to hear some song that you post on Instagram, mm -hmm. Instagram mm -hmm. the whole thing. Well, firstly, thank you. That guy obviously knows, follows, you know, stuff that I do, so that's fucking cool. Um, Curious Electric was almost in a sports hall. It was in, it was in a factory, um, basically a large unit. And that was at the time I was like less experienced with uh, the novelty of a large room and therefore room mics that you could have a lot of fun with. So I was kind of obsessed with room mics at that point so I was like right we're going in this factory because we were doing it ourselves so so we set we the ch the most challenging part was the fact that it wasn't recording studio <laughs> is that we had to like you know put the drums in there and then get the sound and move things out of the way in the factory it was that was the hard part and then I had to like engineer it from like someone's office it was it was it was weird but it was fun yeah there we go and when am I going to release um Definitely 100% this year. And um, I wish I could say like when, because I don't actually know. But it's been it's been a while because loads of reasons, but like it kind of made sense to wait and just keep writing and stuff because the stuff I'm doing is, I don't know, evolving all the time. Um, but it will come this year. So 2018, <laughs> there we go. Great. Well, Dan Lancaster, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. It's been a pleasure finally talking to you and uh, look forward to hanging out in L.A. Thanks for having me, man. I can't wait for L.A. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. Yeah, it'll be really fun. Cool. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you, sir. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.